0: One term that you're going to encounter quite frequently as you read through Epictetus' discourses and look at his interpretation of Stoic philosophy is often translated as appearances or external impressions. There's other ways in which it's translated, but it's all one Greek term, namely phantasia. This is the plural for it, phantasiae, and it also means imagination, it's the word that we get fantasy from, but it comes from the Greek word for appearing, phinomene, that which appears to to a person, that which puts itself in in front of them, you might say. Impression works because it's what impresses itself upon them. And in the Stoic way of looking at this and the way of using this term, it covers an incredibly wide range. So Epictetus will actually go so far as to say that reason itself, or the rational faculty, is a complex system of appearances, meaning that it's something that we can actually experience something that we can grasp, something that we can encounter. And Stoic philosophy is oriented in large part around figuring out how do we deal with these appearances. One thing that I do want to stress as well is that it's not just a human matter. Animals, like he says, use appearances. So animals react to their environment. Even plants, to a certain extent, could be said to react to appearances in a very broad way. Insofar as they react to their environment, animals do as well. So when a dog, you know, sees another dog and it thinks, hey, I want to go over there and and find out what's what with that other dog. It is using, in the sense that Epictetus is talking about, it's using appearances, it's reacting to them. It's engaging with them in some way. Human beings are more complex as rational beings because we not only use appearances and we can use them rightly or use them wrongly, we can also understand appearances. We're able to take a step back and to reflect upon them, to say what's appearing to me isn't necessarily the way things are, even though the appearance is trying to tell me that that's the way things are, or to start comparing them against each other. Or to even, you know, use a sort of systematic mode of inquiry with respect to them. So, human beings have, you might say, a greater capacity, but they also have a greater stake in appearances. And there's more ways in which one can go wrong as a human being with appearances than the other animals do. The the other animals are largely driven by instinct. There's some things that they will get wrong, but, you know, that's not really that big of an issue. them. Whereas for us human beings, there's lots and lots of ways that appearances can mislead us. So Epictetus is going to say we need to be ready to deal with appearances. He says this in chapter eight of book three. He says this in many other places as well. We need to be ready to deal with appearances, and he gives us some guidelines and some advice about that. So one bit of advice is we should think to ourselves, does this really concern my moral purpose or my faculty of choice? That which is within my power, pro-iracist. erasis? is at the core of who I am? Or is it about something else? Is it it something that I don't really have control over? Something that is an indifference? Something that perhaps it matters how I use it, but ultimately it has no intrinsic value in and of itself. That's one thing to to keep in mind. So he says, as we exercise ourselves to meet sophistical interrogations, you know, when when people try to put one over on us, the sophistical interrogations. Maybe translate that as, you know, the best example in our own time, advertising. You don't wanna be misled by advertising or misled by people making fallacious political arguments or things along those lines. You need to exercise your, your mind. You need to become a critical thinker. Similarly, we need to do the same thing, he says, with respect to appearances. So, he says, we need to exercise ourselves daily to meet the impressions that come upon us because these, two put interrogations to they say hey why don't you do this or wouldn't things be better if you did this or you better avoid this over here so he says here's some examples so-and-so's son is dead how do we answer that that lies outside of the sphere of the moral purpose it is not an evil that may sound a little cruel and cold to one but it's applying the stoic philosophy very consistently his father has inherited so-and-so what do you think of it that lies outside of the sphere of the moral purpose it is not an evil Caesar has condemned this person. That lies outside of the sphere of the moral purpose It is not an evil. You see him going over and over the same sort of ground. Does it really concern the core of the person, the moral purpose or the faculty of choice, what we have control over, or doesn't it? Many of the things that are appearances really don't concern us. They are, to a large extent, external. We do have appearances happening within ourselves. We engage in a judgment about ourselves. That's, that's a kind of appearance. But for the most part, they're not things that are within that realm. Now, in another place, chapter 27 of book one, he talks about appearances asserting things to be or not to be in a certain way. And he distinguishes between things appearing to be in a certain way and whether they are in a certain way. So he tells us, for example, appearances come to us in four ways. Either things are and seem to be, or they are not and do not seem to be. Or they are and do not seem to be. There's a discrepancy there between appearance and actuality. Or they do not seem to be, and yet they are. So he says, in all these cases, the business of the educated man is to hit the mark. Whatever be the thing that distresses us, against that we ought to bring up, as he calls it, reinforcements. So we need to be ready to deal with the sorts of suggestions you might say about how to interpret matters that are constantly coming to us from the world from the things that we deal with from culture also you know in some part coming from our own projections onto that reality we are in large part responsible for how things do appear to us you know what weight we give them how we react to them so We need to have some sort of reinforcements ready to deal with appearances. What would be some examples of that? Some of that has to do with how we develop our habits. But here's some other examples. He talks about having arguments ready at hand or reasonings. When death appears to be an evil, we must have ready at hand the argument that it is our duty to avoid evils and that death is an inevitable thing. For what can I do? Where shall I go to escape it? You know, if we have that line of thinking that we have not just, you know, written down somewhere and we can, you know, bring it to bear upon the situation, then we can see that although death does happen and it's certainly not something to be preferred, it's not an evil at least according to the Stoic doctrine. So if that's the case, then we don't have to be disturbed by that appearance. We don't have to say, oh, this is so terrible. How do I avoid this? I can't avoid it. Oh, then I have to be unhappy. He gives all sorts of other examples as well along those lines, but many of them have to do with having ready-to-hand what we could call arguments, or what we could call lines of reasoning about things. He doesn't use this example, but you could think about if you have anger problems, then maybe you need to have ready at hand the notion that comes from anger management, which is as soon as you become angry, you become stupid, and you're not reasoning well, and you probably should take a break, right? If you have that sort of thing ready at hand, then you can oppose it to the other appearance. If you don't have it ready to hand, if you're just trying to, you know, recall what you read a couple weeks ago and skimmed through or heard about in a training session that you were, you know, not taking notes in, but rather thinking about what's for lunch, you're probably not going to be that well equipped to deal with with those appearances. Another thing that he points out, and this is in in Section 18 of Book 2, is that our reactions to appearances, eventually become habits. They become consolidated into habits. And so we wanna be careful about how we feed our habits, how we modify them. But you know, let's look at one example that he brings up. He says, today when I saw a handsome lad or handsome woman, I did not say to myself, would that a man might sleep with her and her husband is a happy man. For the man who uses the expression happy of the husband means happy is the adulterer also. What's going on there? He's analyzing his own processes, his typical processes of thinking about things, of reacting to the appearance of a beautiful body. And he's saying, that's not really the way I want to think about things anymore. So when I meet up with that sort of thing, as I'm going to do, you're always running into some people that are attractive, right? So how are you going to prepare yourself for it? He says, I'm not going to follow that line of reasoning anymore because there's there's something wrong with it. And then he goes on and he says... I do not picture to myself the next scene, what, what would you know? sort of follow along with that. The woman herself in my presence disrobing and lying down by my side. He's not undressing her with his eyes. He's not imagining, well, what would it be like to be with that person? He's developed some sort of control over the things that are suggesting themselves to him. So he's not just carried along by the appearances where the appearances would typically want to take us, or where our own flawed moral and choice processes and reasoning processes would take us because of the habits that we've established, which become a kind of second nature. So, you know, that's a case where he does have some things ready. Now, there is another piece of advice that he gives that's particularly helpful when it comes to appearances as well. This is also in chapter 18 of book 2. He says that when we run into appearances, what we want to do is delay reacting to them and then test them, put them to the test. So, how does this work? He says, if you confront appearances with thoughts the kind of thoughts that that you can. You will overcome it and not be carried away with it. But to begin with, be not swept off your feet by the vividness of the impression, but say, wait for me a little, O impression. Allow me to see who you are and what you are an impression of. Allow me to put you to the test. And after that, do not suffer it to lead you on by picturing to you what will follow. Otherwise, it will take possession of you and go off with you wherever it will. But do you rather introduce and set over against it some fair and noble impression and throw out this filthy one? And if you form the habit of taking such exercises, you will see what mighty shoulders, intellectual shoulders, you develop, what sinews, what vigor. So the idea there is is we want to cultivate a habit of delaying, of saying, wait a second. I'm not going to react to this, even though I I want to, even though that seems to be my natural tendency, I'm not going to react to this in a sort of automatic fashion. Instead, I'm going to think about things. I'm going to reflect. I'm going to mull it over. And then I'll see if it has the same vehemency if I give it five minutes, or if I say I'm going to sleep on that was very good advice. So he's giving us quite a few tools, or he's, he's providing us with a kind of arsenal by which we can tackle constant barrage of impressions or appearances that we're going to run into as people living a life. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.